What's up, everyone? Welcome to an all-new Suiting Up podcast presented by Public.com and OutSystems. This is episode number 10 of season three, and I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Today's show features one of the greatest athletes of our generation. I know I say that week over week. This person dominated the pitch since she was first given a ball at age four. Then just a year later, when she was five, playing organized ball for the first time, she scored 27 goals in her first three games and was moved up age groups and over to the boys' side. That's some prodigy stuff right there. Abby Wambach was in all everything, player of the year in everything in high school, literally too many awards to run through in this intro, though she did herald from a bit of a lacrosse town in Rochester, New York, Roch Vegas, got to give a shout out to all those in the upstate. And instead of going to the 15-time NCAA champion in North Carolina, she surprised everyone and committed to the University of Florida the home of Gatorade, where she won a national championship with the underdogs as soon as her freshman year. And on the show, we talk about Abby's World Cups, Olympic medals, pro soccer career that spanned different teams, leagues, and hundreds and hundreds of goals. Though Abby is far more than one of the greatest and winningest soccer players in history, we spend a lot of the time on the show talking about her beginnings, from the coaching moments that molded her as a great teammate, to hard-hitting lessons from legends like Michelle Akers, to the most challenging of her career, and she calls also the most rewarding, when she was moved from a starter to a supporter in her last World Cup that tested her leadership resolve from an all-new angle on the pitch. And of course, we do reminisce on that header heard around the world in the final seconds of a World Cup match against Brazil. We talk about that and everything from relationships, awareness, supporting the community, and building a wolf pack, lessons designed from her best-selling book. Truly a favorite guest and conversation that I'll continue to listen back to many times in the future. Let's get into it. This is Abby Wambach. Today's show is made possible by our presenting sponsors. First, let me tell you about public.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. Public makes the stock market social so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of your money. They democratize trading, giving us a space to talk about. Visit public.com for more and out systems. They provide the tools to help companies quickly build apps to solve your business needs. The PLL used OutSystems to help us design our COVID app for the championship series in 2020, ensuring the health and safety of all of our players, staff, and coaches. Check out OutSystems.com for your business needs. All right, Abby, I have you as one of the greatest athletes over the last generation, full stop. And I want to start in a, a different way. So start kind of at the end. And then we'll kind of figure this out as we go. But your Gatorade commercial, when you were announcing your retirement, was called Forget Me. And uh, I've written out the lines. I won't read them. We'll play them. I want to leave a legacy where the ball keeps rolling forward. Where the next generation accomplishes things so great that I am no longer remembered. Can you talk about the unique retirement was that most athletes want to go out and be heralded and you wanted to go out and be forgotten. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that story. Oh gosh. I, I still remember the moment when I was uh, my agent, he had to like make up a story to get me to the Gatorade offices because he wanted to surprise me with the storyboards of the potential for this commercial. He's like, oh yeah, Gatorade has something they want to talk to you about. So 
I've been a long, a long time, basically career long Gatorade athlete. And I really feel like they've been a family to me and have supported me for so many decades. It feels like, uh, you know, I went to university of Florida naturally it's called Gatorade. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and I just remember sitting there reading the storyboards for this possible commercial that they wanted to make for my retirement. And as an athlete, it feels like, oh gosh, you're going to make, you're going to have a commercial that's Mm. like about you Gatorade commercial that's about you like that's what I grew up dreaming about right and 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 I know that sounds silly but like when you grow up watching you know anything you can do I can do better the Mia and Mike's like want to be like Mike commercials like that's when you feel like you know you've made it Hmm. but as a female athlete there's still so much more work that needs to be done Hmm. and when you're in it when you're playing you don't realize, you don't want to realize that. You want to be getting it all. You want to be um, getting paid what you deserve. But in the end of my career, I realized, oh, I was just a bit of a, I was just a cog in this wheel, in this gear, right? I was just a part of the story. I'm not the story. And I have a healthy ego on my shoulders. I've done a lot of personal work. So I never thought that I was the end all be all, even if I was winning championships and breaking records. And so when I read the storyboard for this commercial, this forget me idea, first of all, I don't think it had ever really been done before. So it was unique and and, and different, which I loved. And it made me so emotional. I cried right there at that conference room table because not too often do you get to mix corporate worlds with personalities and do they hear you and do they actually fulfill kind of what's inside of you? Um, it was as if this storyboard was written specifically for me. It wasn't like they were trying to get the most out of or, or trying to like turn me into a marketable athlete. Like they made this commercial specific for for my style, for who I was. Hmm. And I know my agent, Dan Levy, had a probably a big hand in it. And I appreciate him for that because... Truly, it's probably the most important commercial I ever made. And I think it set a real tone for the way that I was going to shape my career. uh, And then, of course, shape my retirement from soccer and head into post-career life. Yeah. And you talk a little bit about going into that transition, afraid of losing your identity after your retirement. But then you said that soccer wasn't what made me. I brought who I was to soccer. A couple of additional things. You talk about your team, whether it is your lifelong partnership with Gatorade, your relationship with Dan, who's your agent, longtime agent. And in your recent book, you talk about the Wolfpack and that being a a key ingredient uh, for your advice to women is to surround yourself with a strong Wolfpack. How does that, as you think about your your time in sports and how did you reconcile that in, in a world where you know, you did shatter records and you did win championships. You were highly recruited. You went against the norm and went to Florida instead of Carolina, but then you won a championship your freshman year. So in sports where we're challenged often is, and maybe this is the acute question, how to balance knowing that your individual performance impacts the greater good of the team while also as a captain and leader being mindful of the team being more important than your individual performance? These are these are really important questions I think a team athlete needs to ask themselves at a young age. I remember having coaches, especially my high school coach, who I give so much props to for teaching me how to be a good teammate. You know, she didn't know much about soccer, and she was also my basketball coach. 
but she knew how to bring people together and she mm-hmm. knew how to get the most out of people and pulled me aside quite a bit and told me, listen, you're probably going to be the best player on every team, but I promise you that your teammates will either want to follow you or they're going to want to hate you. Hmm. And you have to make them want to follow you. And how will you do that? That was the big question for a lot of my life. How do I get people to want to be, not necessarily like follow me, like I'm the leader, but like want to support the skills that I have. And then when you find yourself on the national team, that you've got 25 of us (laughs) that are all the best in the world, specifically at some skill or another, how do you get a group of people like that to all follow each other? Hmm. And so I think from a young age, I was scoring tons of goals. I scored a lot of goals in, in high school. I scored a lot of goals in college. And I realized like you could choose one of two ways. You can be that cocky athlete who scores the goals and doesn't admit to any mistake. And you just look around and you see a team that's empty. And I always wanted to be on a team that was full, full of life, full of competition, full of energy. This might sound weird, but it was also self-serving the way that I approached team sport because I knew that I was skillful. I knew that I had much to bring to any team that I stepped into. But I also knew that that my success was was also in large part based on how successful my teammates could be around me. Yeah. I mean, I don't score any goal in the whole course of my career without the help of a teammate. And that's the truth. I talk about it in, in the book Wolfpack and and championing each other. People ask me all the time like how how do you compete with each other instead of against? Cuz on the national team and in any competitive environment you're all competing for that starting job. Like that's just the reality. How do you not take that competition and turn it into, into spite, into hatred, right? How do you cultivate that competition and make that part of your culture so that it builds everybody up rather than breaks people down? And that is the difficult quality. So you have to have leadership and leaders around you and people around you that are capable because I believe that competition has, there's the other side of competition the jealousy factor, mm-hmm. and the fear factor, fear of failure, fear of not being good enough. You know, I, I do a lot of talks in the business world. And and this is one quality that I believe that when somebody does something well, go congratulate them, right? Because yes, as a human being, we all have a moment, we can be jealous, but don't let that moment choose the re- response. Yeah, Don't let that moment um, come into your life and turn you into a bad person, right? Like we all get to feel a certain way, but we're adults. We get to choose how we respond to some of these feelings. Like, oh, there's jealousy. Why am I jealous? Like maybe that means I'm not working hard enough. Maybe that means I'm not challenging myself. And in the national team environment, Alex Morgan scores goals. I walk up to Alex Morgan. I'm like, hell yeah, that's awesome. And this is my now opportunity to turn up my own volume. So don't be afraid of the level up moment that is being required of you. That's where I feel like jealousy stops and ambition begins. Like Hmm. you can have that moment of emotion, but stop yourself from going down that road and turn that into ambition and and turn your own level up, like volume up. I really like that. I've never heard or thought about that in in years of therapy and sports (laughs) psychology as well, like describing it as jealousy because I think a lot about 
Michael Jordan and uh, his career, and we all watch the doc and know his longtime business manager. And what I struggled with in, in kind of my career is, you know, growing up looking toward that type of figure where it is full cutthroat at all costs, and it's a significant sacrifice to your relationships to a degree. Mm -hmm. And how do you balance being able to turn that on and off? And what I'm hearing is it's, it's actually not turning it on and off. It's identifying the jealousy mm -hmm. or like the secondary emotions that we have as athletes where it's okay, if what I'm hearing is right, it's okay to have that ambition to be the best while also fully exploring the success of your teammates and not letting that be the motivation. And I think what's so tricky in sports is we just got beaten down over time with like being the hardest worker in the room and the threat of who's next in line or there's someone out there that's on the wall or, or shooting more than us. And it's so fear mongering. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we never stand a chance. And why I think a lot of athletes that make it into the professional ranks, whatever discipline, end up coming out personally underdeveloped. And there's a lot of wider factors based on the kind of life that we have exposure to. Uh, but what is so unique about your experience is, is very much as a pioneer in a, in a sport specifically, if we think about the disparities and the history of patriarchy and how that makes its way into sports is that women's soccer had been the group that commercially punched through it really early and and continues to punch greater than on a pound for pound basis and overall more than men's soccer on the u.s side if we just side by side revenue so like, what is that effect on the rest of women in sports? One of the things that I read about your story is in your time training with Michelle Akers when you were younger, there was this moment where, oh, it's okay to be a badass competitor and be cutthroat on the field. Now I'm going to be less worried about my teammates being aggravated with that extra bit of push I have. So that unlocked your true self uh, on the field. And then you've transitioned to one of your points in your book to leading from the bench in your final stage with the Olympic team. Let me tell you the story. So Michelle Akers, if you don't know her, she was probably the most influential player that the women's game has ever seen. She played the game like I wish to one day play, just so physical, strong, um, and towards the end of her career was struggling with uh, chronic fatigue fatigue syndrome. So for her to be playing at the highest level, like she was and, and dealing with that disease. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a miracle what she was able to accomplish. And in 1998, I found myself on the Chula Vista Olympic training center grounds in Southern California. And we were about to head out to training and I'm sitting on the bench, putting on my cleats. And I look up and Michelle Akers, who had this completely just wild, awesome, fro this hair uh, yeah. on her shoulders it's like an unmistakable michelle acres walking towards our practice and i was like what the hell is she doing why is she doing why is she walking towards this she sits down on the bench next to me and starts to lace up her boots and she's just like hey what's up and i was like uh hi michelle acres i'm 18 years old she's 35 yeah. they're training you know the women's national team is training um for the 99 world cup where you remember when brandy rips off her jersey after mm -hmm. scoring the the game-winning penalty kick um 
and we get into a 5v5 aside uh, game, which, you know, I think your listeners probably know what that is. It's five versus five goalkeepers in the goal. Um, this, this specific drill is supposed to incite tons of offense because everywhere the ball is, is in a goal scoring chance because the goals are pushed together fairly tight. And um, it was an, it was an experience for me because I, I was put on the opposite team of Michelle. So I was pissed first of all, cause I wanted to be on her team. Yeah. Our team ends up going up pretty quickly. We're up four to zero, three quarters of the way through this game. And then the last quarter coach calls five minutes left and something totally different happens. Right. So for the first three quarters of the game, Michelle was doing everything, the leader uh, that you would expect her to be doing. She's, she's organizing, she's motivating. She's um, you know, just giving all of her team, the, the right information, though it wasn't necessarily working because we were kicking their ass. You know, here this moment as a coach calls for five minutes left, she realizes, oh, I've got to actually step into a different version of myself right now. I've got to step into to a leadership, a different version of leadership. So her goalkeeper had the ball in her hands. And so Michelle ran back to her own goal, goalkeeper, got one inch from her face, literally, and was like, give me the effing ball and all of us like we're just wide-eyed she gets the ball dribbles through our entire team literally leaving every single one of us on the ground like if you came into her zone she would just pummel you and scores a goal game was winners keepers so she ran back to her own goalkeeper who had her ball the ball in her hand again and of course give me the ball and every time goal after goal after goal right i think you can probably figure out where this this story goes michelle's team wins i'm pissed but i'm also surprisingly amazed at what just happened you know i had never seen a person let alone a woman step in there to their power quite like she did that day and yes she was twice our age of course she probably is a better soccer player but the audacity of this woman the shameless audacity that it took for her to believe in herself, demand the ball. And then, you know, the, the caveat to this story that I think is really important is that she was able to follow through and bring her team to a victory. Now, whoever's listening to this, like whatever this might mean to you, demanding the ball takes many forms and shapes. Delivering on that demand is what I think is inside of us what is like what is like deep in our veins like who our character is like that is what we're talking about and i don't know i just think that that story was so profound and it stayed with me and it lasted with me throughout my whole career i mean people ask me all the time abby you scored so many big goals in like the biggest moments right mm-hmm. like the clock was ticking down and your team was pushing for a goal and like you just you were able to step into a, a different set of like, like you were playing by a different set of rules. And it's because I witnessed somebody when I was really young and impressionable do this. Hmm. I witnessed somebody say, you know what? Give me the ball. I'm going to do this. Get on my back. And I think as a leader, this is one of the most important moments to know when to put a team on your back and run. And then the counter to this story is like in 2015, when halfway through the tournament, uh, a coaching staff sat me down and told me that um, the rest of the tournament, I was going to be coming off the bench as as a bench player, not as a starter for the United States. For the first time I've ever been benched in a world championship, I was like beside myself. Mm. And, and here I was, I was offered an opportunity, right? 
I'm being handed a different role than I was, than I was originally anticipating slash than I had ever been given before. And I didn't really know how to respond. So I found myself in the hotel room and I was like, okay, you have a choice here. You can be a good teammate or a bad teammate. That's it. Like that's, that's the choice. You go down this path or that path. Let me tell you as a competitor and a, and a person who has a healthy ego on her shoulders, I played out both of these paths to the very end because, you know, this was not an easy thing to swallow for me. It was like the most devastating news ever. And now I'm in this bubble, this environment, the World Cup, my last World Cup. I knew that my response would matter. I knew that my response would affect our team one way or the other. World Cup is one of those things that I had yet to win. And I just understood, okay, what is the real goal here? Like, what am I doing? And, and, and the real goal is winning. And so I was offered an opportunity. And I think everybody probably understands, like, I chose to be a good teammate, though, like, there were parts of me that were really wanting to not to be a good teammate that I did want to just pout and sit my ass on the bench and just like, wish them good luck, right? Good luck. But I didn't. I, I was up. I was I was communicative. I was loud. I was actually so obnoxious that our coaching staff like moved me to the very furthest end of the bench. They're like, <laughs> can you please shut up? But I know that I did have an impact. And here's the thing. You know, this was a moment for me as an older player that everything that I had yet to learn about leadership was actually sitting right there on that bench next to me. Hmm. This was the moment where I learned, okay, as a leader, you have to know when to put the team on your back or you have to know when to put the team in front of you and push them ahead. And this is that moment for me. This was that moment. And I'm not talking to you. Um, I'm not, I'm not giving commencement speeches or writing books in my, my post career had it not been for the way that I responded. Cause people ask me all the time, like, what's your favorite goal? Like, what's the thing you're most proud of on the national team? And I swear, I swear to you, it's not the goals that I scored. It's actually the relationships that I created and the way that I responded to that benching. Because that, when I look back, that was my integrity. My integrity stayed intact the entire time through my career. Um, When the going got rough, like, I can honestly say, like, I did the I did the thing that I, that I wish I could always say that I did. Mm. I, I backed up everything that I said throughout my whole career and not to mention now in our retirements, I solidified deep trust in every single one of those teammates. Yeah. When things go on in their lives now, they call me babies, death, diagnosis, um, engagements, marriage, whatever it is. They're calling me because they know that that I am somebody that can be counted on and trusted. That's really powerful. I mean, we we could sit here and talk about goals and clutch moments and practices, but a couple of things that come to mind and I was just talking about this week with a friend is like pro athletes kind of do two things really well. At an early age, they're ambitiously optimistic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to be to to make it into the one percent of the one percent. And and it's it's irrational sometimes. I'm still that way. Yeah. It's, not, it's not just a young thing. It's a, it's a lifelong thing, I believe. <laughs> Number two is that, and I think this carries over to a lot of things in life, whether entrepreneurs listening, folks in the arts and entertainment, is, is that fear plays a pretty significant role on our lives. And, and you talked about it in your Michelle Akers story and then even in your decision 
bifurcated between being a good teammate or, you know, continuing to allow yourself to experience the emotions that were very real uh, when you were coming off the bench in your last World Cup. But underneath fear is shame. And you had you had discussed that uh, you'd use shameless for Michelle Akers. And I think what I you know, I know what I've experienced in my life, and it, it's actually come more toward my the kind of the middle of my professional career after I had, you know, quote unquote, had proven my abilities is that shame and the, the anticipation of shame of, of demanding the ball and not providing or not, you know, coming through for your team, the other end of that, that that's the risk that is constantly jumping to the forefront of our minds for anyone, whether you play sports or not, is I want the ball, but what if I don't come through? And so you talk about making failure your fuel in your book. You know, it's it's always like a hindsight 2020 thing for me. Like, yep, a year later, that failure was actually really great. I've yet to figure out how to, and I like address it in that moment. And I think you did in your anecdote of, you know, coming off the bench is you broke it down and you maybe did a pros and cons list. But but generally when it comes to shame, like how do you help those in business and the next generation of athletes basically look it in the eye and say, well, fuck it, I'm doing it anyway, because this is what I'm, I'm bred to do. I've been practicing to do this and not back down from that fear. Well, I just got to say, I think it's important when people are trying to, to demand the ball in their life. If you start jumping to the what if game, it's over. Mm. You can't. You You have to stay completely present and completely optimistic about what your intentions are. You might fail, right? You might not follow through. But that all that does is give you information on what to change next time, right? Failure is never a failure unless you're repeating it multiple times. Mm. Um, for me, failure is an important part of life that gives us information. I learned this at a very young age on the national team. The culture is very set in stone. And if you are not failing, then you are not trying. If you are not failing, then you aren't taking risks or playing on your edge. And that's the, the culture that has always been embraced on our national team and something that is actually hard to explain in the real world, um, in the business world, because you have to mitigate risk, right? <laughs> you have to manage risk versus reward. But when you're playing in an, in an environment where your, your job can be taken away at any second, where luck sometimes has something to do with it. You know, you have a referee that doesn't see a penalty or you have a referee and calls a penalty. There's so many things that are out of your control that the one thing that our national team has always chosen to control is to relentlessly pursue excellence. And that doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but it's the pursuit of excellence that we all commit to. And we commit to it in every facet of our lives, right? Mm -hmm. So I would venture to say that most pro athletes are a little bit singularly obsessed with their craft. Mm -hmm. They themselves and I, right? I fell mm -hmm. in that category. But if you get into a group and in, in, an environment where all of you are collectively bought into the same ideal of winning full stop and you're willing to do whatever it takes, that does come with choosing to play on an edge that risk and failure is commonplace. I mean, think about sports, right? God, like how many, like in soccer, in lacrosse, how many times is it actually perfectly happening? 
right? Not that often. There's always mistakes. I was going to say never. And always pivoting and always like just reassessing and reestablishing a play or whatever, whatever it is. Even if you score a goal, like there's, there's usually somebody that is like made up for some, like some thing that happened. Hmm. And I don't know. I just think that the psychology, the, the thought of what if this fails is the beginning of the failure. Yeah. And that is something that you can control. You can manage your internalized thought process and the belief system that you have. I think it probably drives my wife bonkers at how optimistic I am about the world and life. I'm actually sure of it. It's actually one of our top five fights, right? Like you just, everything is going to be fine and and you're, it's all going to work out. She's like, it's not all going to work out. You know, I'm going to make it work out. But I think, I don't know. I think the psychology of sport and especially at the elite level, it does come with some humility too, because you have to be able to call out the failure when it happens and Mm -hmm. own it. And that is a really difficult quality to have. The less you do that, the more the shame builds up. So here's to your answer your question. You know, shame, I'm a recovering alcoholic and shame is the thing that just takes you out of the game, right? So I have made it my mission in my life to be completely honest and truthful about everything. The little, little white lie turns into a less of a white lie and to mm-hmm. a bigger lie and to another bigger lie. And all of that stuff starts to compound and turns into this unforgivable amount of shame inside of us. And I think that as an athlete, there really isn't room as a competitive athlete, an, an elite athlete, an Olympic athlete. You have to believe in yourself more than any other person on the planet. Yeah. And that has like a, that there is a little selfishness that has to be a part of it, but don't worry your retirement, that selfishness will go away in your retirement. Hopefully you'll be able to see like, oh, I was a little bit of a jerk during certain years of my life. That's fine. I needed to kind of be that way. And just like, I'm going to apologize for my sins and move on. We're going to take a quick break in the show to talk about one of our presenting sponsors. This is public.com. They're an investing social network. It's also a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. Here's the benefit of being a part of a community of investors. There are built-in learning opportunities. You can talk about companies and market trends and benefit from all of those perspectives that can help you figure out the right investment strategy long-term that meets your needs. You can follow me there. I'm at Paul Rabel, as well as some other people you might know, like Tony Hawk and Professor Scott Galloway from NYU Stern School of Business. This week, I talked about two big ticket items. First, the WWE's publicly traded stock and my early predictions on a nice pop due to WrestleMania, their Peacock deal and DraftKings partnership. And I talked about esports and gaming as well, but more specifically, the big commissions Apple gets through their in-app purchase take. That's the kind of conversation we have and other investors do on public.com. They take no commission fees on standard trades. There are no account minimums to get started. You can invest in literally thousands of publicly traded companies for as little as $1. So sign up at public.com forward slash suiting up if you want $10 on me in free stock. That's public.com forward slash suiting up to get started for yourself. Here's the fine print. Valid for U.S. residents 18 and older and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures today. Do you have tactics or any like mindfulness techniques that you would do at different stages or even, you know, fast forward to 
the major international competitions when you had already set records and if that when that or if pops up in your head do you exhale do you uh, meditate uh, do you write something down do you have a go-to I, one of the things I, I I use as an example for athletes out there is the the beauty in a free throw in basketball mm-hmm. that to dribble, spin the ball, whatever the routine is, that's actually, you know, written in meditative behavior to mm-hmm. reset and focus on the present shot. Mm-hmm. I wish we could do that before every play, but we can't to your point. And that's why sport is so imperfect. But what, what were some of your techniques, especially live the referee misses the penalty I harbor in that shit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, as a forward, as a goal scorer, I had to have what we call um, amnesia, right? Uh, Mm. so you're scoring maybe one goal a game, which means you're very unsuccessful for most of the game, right? Mm. So there's a lot of opportunity in the actual game itself for imagery, for self-reassurance, you know, and over the course of your life, you get used to this, right? So this is not for the faint of heart, by the way, like you have to have an overwhelming sense of optimism, like, okay, I just need a chance. I remember during the 2011 game against Brazil, when I scored that crazy late goal, we're in the 122nd minute of this game. And I'm literally still screaming at the top of my lungs, like one chance, that's all we need. And I know that it takes two seconds to get the ball from our own goal line to the opposite goal. Right. Uh, And so that's, that's just the belief of our national team. And, and quite frankly, I don't think that that is commonplace for many other countries around the women's game that, I mean, I've talked to a lot of, a lot of those players and they're like, you believe until the end. It's the mm-hmm. most amazing thing. And it's because we refuse to just die. We refuse to just give up. Like there is no quit in us. And it does take an extra, an extraordinary amount of imagery of meditation of sitting with each other of communication whether it's during the game or halftime or you know before the game it's probably clinically would be classified clinically insane the routines that I found myself in in the end of my career because you know once I had a great game I'm like oh I'm totally replicating every single thing that I did the day before and every single thing that I did the morning of and the whatever I ate <laughs> like how I yeah. put my shoe on how I put my sock on I had to tap my left foot I had to tap my right foot I had to look over and see my friend Rachel Bueller looking at pictures because oh that's so cute look at her look at pictures I had to go over and like somehow raz up uh, Alex Morgan who's trying to be like super quiet in her locker and trying to get into her zone I mean I I had crazy weird stuff yeah. uh, that just got me into my zone and you know if you're young or even if you're a person I believe that structure liberates so even now in my post career, like having a set routine in the morning really does set me in the right direction for that day. It gives me like a little bit of sense of self and some self-esteem. That's interesting. We, we call it superstitions in sports all the time and we get that question asked, but just tying in your, your last two speaking points is sports are full of variables. The run of play is, and let's try to find some constants if we can. And if that's like our own tapping of our shoes or, you know, you know, hand signals to our teammates, like that creates actually some sanity in, in an insane world of playing sports. 
Um, well, because you're, you're, you have so much stuff that's out of your control that's happening. Yeah. You can only control what you can control, right? Yeah. You can't control what your teammates are doing for the most part. You cannot control what the ref or the opposite team is doing at all. The reason why we love watching sports is because we do not know how it's going to end. That's right. Athletes are actually a version of art artists because there's creativity happening. There's entertainment happening and there's an unknown outcome. So we're all searching for this unknown outcome. And I just always had this deeper sense in spirituality inside of me that I had this ability that I could affect the outcome in one way or another. Hmm. Sometimes it was goals and sometimes that was leadership. Sometimes it was heading. Sometimes it was defending whatever it is. But I always wanted to make sure that I left my claim or stake on that game. I wanted to make sure that I, ha I had an imprint and an impact. And so whatever it is that you need to do to have that impact, do it, right? Like I'm telling you, I was Looney Tunes at the end, but like it worked. So y'all yeah. can laugh your heads off and be like, oh, she's wild and nuts. But screw you. I did well. I had a great career. Yeah. Uh, Ian Dark's call on that cross from Megan <laughs> to you was fucking unbelievable. It gives me chills every time I watch it. And I watched it back probably 30 times last night. Um, but yeah, the, the I think Megan's cross was better than his call on it, but I, I hear you. Ian, Megan's cross Ian. was ridiculous, but you had a small margin to, to head that thing in. Well, listen, I mean, as that ball is coming, I got a really early read on it and the whole freaking game that defender, she had my number. I couldn't get ahead on anything. She just, she just defended me so perfectly the whole game. She was strong. She just kept heading the ball away and she took a step towards the ball and I knew the ball had more flight in it. Wow. And so I knew her step took her towards the ball. And so I just started to peel off and then I, for whatever reason, the goalkeeper came out. I had yeah. no freaking idea why she did, but I'm glad she did. Yeah. And so I saw in my peripheral vision that the keeper went out. All I was thinking, just go over the keeper's hands. If it's over the keeper's hands, I'm wide open. I like literally have chills right now just thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. And then it goes over the keeper's hands. And all I just think is don't miss. Right. Just head this ball. <laughs> That's and a lot instantly, for like a half a second of what's happening going through. Yes. <laughs> and instantly, once it comes off my head, I think, oh my gosh, it's it's side netting. It's not even it's not wow. even in the goal. The stadium went nuts. Yeah. But I was like, they got it wrong. They don't know that it went to the side of the the goal, right? Oh my gosh. But then the stadium went like really nuts. And I like because I blacked out, I think, for a second. Like there was just too much. It was just like too exciting. Um, and then my body kind of, I woke up and I was like at the corner flag celebrating with my teammates. Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, it, it, there's a reason why they say it. the most exciting form of original programming is live sports, because like you said, we don't know what's going to happen. The only other thing that's live performance at this grandiose stage is Broadway. Mm -hmm. But the difference I tell people is you don't have actors on stage trying to stop the actors for doing from doing their job well. <laughs> and that's what's so hard about sports is like we train and we grind and we build relationships and we run through scatter reports, we study film, all for that moment when we're live on air and we're live with our teammates and then we have an opposing team literally trying to stop us. And in your case, you had someone defending you well the entire 121 minutes really well. 
at a world-class level, and then that moment came. That's what I think if, if we frame it the right way, we can give ourselves as athletes a little bit of cushion, a little bit of forgiveness, in that I often see, and this is the ego in a lot of us, is it all rests on our shoulders. Mm. And we didn't score, we didn't perform, we should have been better versus sometimes just saying, well, the defender played really fucking well. Mm-hmm. You know, and giving credit helps alleviate, I think, some of that, some of that pain on negative outcomes. Yeah, I like that. I think it's important. I don't know. I just think that our team, because we just always believed that we could change the outcome, we were always able to do it because we all collectively believed that we could. Mm. And that belief, I think, is sometimes bigger and stronger than actual skill and body. It's it's an emotion and an energy that everybody, if you buy into it, it's really, really hard to compete against. Mm. And win or lose, that's the energy that is required for championships, truly. I played in a lot of finals in my life, and both teams deserve to be at most finals. And both teams have really great goal scorers and and really great defenders. And sometimes it's just like, who energetically wants to risk it freaking all? Mm. Who wants to say to the universe, if I don't win this game, I'm going to be pissed off for the rest of my life. Mm. And those that come out on top are, I think, in some ways willing to risk it all for the chance at glory just for one second. I mean, as a champion, every single time I stood on that top podium and I got a medal wrapped around my neck, I stepped off and the climb begins again. And it's brutal. It's the moment where you're like, oh, we've done it, right? You step off the podium and you're like, oh, I want to do that again. Yeah. And that's just the freaking cycle. And it never freaking ends until you retire. It's a cycle. And we've talked about building relationships with teammates and, you know, championing each other, leading from the bench, all, all things you talk about in your book. And you also mem- uh, referenced your wife, Glennon. And, and, and I think a lot about relationships that we build in the locker room with teammates and what are the shared values with our relationship at home. And our relationship at home is different. Our personal relationships take on, I think, much more positively a long view and and more empathic, more understanding, less about you know a, a shared singular goal of winning, mm-hmm. right? And relationships, healthy relationships, are about being and understanding. And in her book, uh, which was one of my favorite reads uh, this summer, she talked about meeting you, and you all were both at a book conference having published your latest, and then she met you uh, or took a trip to the ESPYs, uh, which you talk about kind of that moment on stage of being recognized with sports fans and athletes everywhere as one of the great icons next to Peyton Manning and Kobe Bryant, and this different kind of outcome for men in sports that could retire on a pile of cash in your position but it was right at that time where you're building, you know, this relationship with Glennon that now are married and your mother and and businesswoman and and so there's this evolution that happened really quickly or or perhaps like your personal relationship helped you carry through this next stage. So if you could talk about maybe some shared values and then learnings from personal relationships to locker room relationships and maybe if you would do them differently now? It's mm, a really good question. I think that there was, for me, because I can't speak for other people, but for me, I think that my 
professional relationships in locker rooms required me to be completely present and and to carry on this mentality that I had for many years as an athlete, this little bit of selfish inclination, right? And when I retired and met Glennon, I was able to leave that personality in some ways behind uh, and step into a more beautiful and true version of myself, like a post-athlete Abby, somebody who um, was capable of managing herself and time and capable of being strong and also empathetic and other-minded. I think that part of what was called for, for being Abby, athlete Abby, I needed to be so singularly focused on this thing I know that that was what was required for me and of me to maintain success. Now, some other athletes might be able to say, yeah, I can have relationships and also be a pro athlete and be my best self in both realms. But I think that I wasn't able to actually split myself into two like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that I played and the, the kind of leadership that I needed to have for this team was all consuming, hmm. not healthy either, by the way. Right. Uh, which is why I started drinking a little bit too much towards the end. But yeah, meeting Glennon was such a relief because I, quite frankly, it is a lonely life traveling around the world. And yes, you are with your friends, you're with teammates. But when you are thinking about yourself all the time, dude, it's so exhausting. When you don't have real time to expand your businesses or your family relationships and you've missed every birthday and you have missed everything because you've been gone, like that sucks. Yeah. You know? And so meeting Glennon was like the first real grounding I have had in my life. And it was, I think, the first opportunity I've ever had at a real relationship, at like a fully human relationship. It wasn't just like you were going to get, you were going to get what you get of me. It was like, oh, you were going to get all of me. And, and I'm so glad because had I met Glennon, I mean, six months sooner, I wasn't ready. I mean, yeah. I was, a, I was like literally a month sober when we met. And so I'm just so glad that we were able to, to see each other. And, you know, this is five years ago now. Yeah. So grateful. Um, I'm so much of a better person now. Yeah. So much more grounded. Yes, I love the life that I lived. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I wouldn't change anything. Maybe I would drink a lot less because I could probably still be playing if that were the case. But, you know, I, I love my life now. I would not be able to to leave my family like, like I was on the road for so much of my adult life playing for our national team. Okay, everyone, we're going to take a second break in our show to highlight our other presenting partner, OutSystems. They are a partner of the PLL that keeps our business going. They make applications that make the difference and solve the needs for your company. Allow me to explain. OutSystems empowers their internal teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud apps for capturing new markets, delivering new services, and winning new customers for you and our company. For the technical heads out there, they tackle your backlog, leverage new tech, and keep up with the changing needs of your business so you can help drive future growth. For us, we created a COVID app with OutSystems that every player, coach, and staff member used in Utah during our championship series this past summer. It's on their mobile devices. We're going to continue to work with them in 2021 and beyond. They also work with the likes of Mercedes-Benz, Warner Brothers, Honda, Exxon, 
and many, many more. Pretty reputable sources. Build the difference with OutSystems and your company today. Learn more at OutSystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ticketmaster. They are our powered by and official ticketing partner of the Premier Lacrosse League. At the PLL, we're thrilled to announce our upcoming 2021 summer schedule in tandem with the Ticketmaster team this week. We're going to account for fan and player safety as a priority. We'll have a joint COVID policy available and a top-class seat manifest for each of our venues complying by local and state outdoor venue capacities. You can buy and sell tickets online for concerts, sports, theater, family, and other events near you at Ticketmaster.com. But this week, go to Ticketmaster.com to buy your PLL tickets for the 2021 season. You and Glennon share a lot of really great experiences across your social uh, communicative experiences and you kind of like talk to each other and, and and play live it's a great like modeling of of fun and introspection and kind of curiosity and showing an, a, a range of emotions together five years in i would imagine that you with this with the same kind of intensity to me when i think about you guys it's challenging relationship norms and and not like that the history of of marginalizing the LGBT community and that like you know terrible kind of generations worth of ostracizing, but relationships as a whole and what we can hope to have and you know I think a norm is calling early relationships honeymoon phases and getting to know each other and the excitement and then that settles off and there's expectations same thing we have in sports. And you've been one that they've always not only challenged them, but punched right through them. You know, and we all struggle with relationships. So how is is your relationship continue on with Glennon so wonderful? And I know you all sh- share all sides of it, which is equally as important. Yeah. I mean, I think when early on in our relationship, we, we were speaking with this woman and um, we were like, we don't know when to tell the world. Like, how do we do this? And she's just like, you don't have to say anything. You just have to be. You don't have to tell people you're in love. You just have to be in love. And over time, one of the greatest things, like it's like almost a revolutionary thing that we've been doing. We didn't know it. It wasn't like our plan. But these little videos, these little like snippets of our lives that we show the world, um, they are true. They're not like planned or anything. They're true. And they're also compatible across every relationship because relation is relation. It doesn't matter what gender you are or what faith you are or any of it. Right. So it's like, what's been so fascinating to me is so many men responding like, Oh, I'm, I'm Glennon in this situation or I'm, I'm team Abby here. I'm team Glennon here. I'm like, Oh my God, this is hilarious. Right. (laughs) Because Glennon and I, from, from the looks of it, are like, oh, Abby's more butch and she's more femme. So, like, of course, I'm going to take more masculine behaviors and stuff. But, like, actually, I don't like spiders and stuff. So, Glennon has to, like, take care of that because – and it's it's comedy, right? Like, who – like, it's, like, one of the first questions she asked when we got into the relationship. She's like, so I'm new to this gay culture. I'm like, who gets the spiders? Like, I don't know what's going to happen here. <laughs> um, and so we approach it with – with joy and love and, you know, humor. Cause that's like, that's life, you know? And I don't pretend to know or be an expert at relationships by any means, but what we do and what we have chosen to do with our life is to show our humanness, 
to show our messiness in all of its glory and not be ashamed of it. Both of us are sober. We both, in, in terms of living a sober life, you know, living a shameless life is the way out of any kind of suffering. So no matter what it is, like she'll be doing something. I'm like, hold on a second. The world needs to see this craziness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just been so fun and unique for us to kind of develop our ways. And I mean, we believe that most relationships have about four or five fights in them. They might come out in different ways, but they're about the same shit. Like every single fight is usually about one thing or another that you and your spouse are dealing with and and will deal with forever. So if you can figure out and point out what it's really about, like get to the truthy truth of it, and then it takes the steam out of it. So early on in our relationship, we like, we were fighting, we were fighting, we were fighting, like we're just past like the honeymoon stage. And we couldn't figure out how to get our way through it. And it's like, oh, no, this is the same thing. This is the same fight. This is a, So it's like, oh, this is a thing that probably I'm not – my behavior is not going to change because this is who I am. And I'm just going to keep bringing more awareness to it. And the same thing is like, oh, it's your behavior. It's, it's probably something that you're not going to change, but you're going to just keep bringing awareness to it. But, like, it hurts my feelings. And for, for lesbians, like, we just don't stop talking, like, ever to women who are introspective and, like, spiritual and yeah. um, into that stuff. So, yeah, I'm proud of us. And I'm also not an expert. So take everything or just leave it. doesn't matter to me. <laughs> I've listened to Elaine de Baton say – uh, something similar that if you can identify kind of pinpoint the problems or the stuff that you have to live with in your mm-hmm. partner mm-hmm. and and be good with that, then the relationship's going to be fucking great. Yes. That's it. I talk too loud. I interrupt. I <laughs> snore. And sometimes I don't have, I'm not consciously thinking about other people. Glennon is always consciously thinking about other people. So sometimes I like start a sentence and she'll have to like put her hand on my leg. Like, have you thought about everybody in this room before you go down this road? (laughs) You know? And that's just like, that's who I am. So there's stuff that like that come up, comes up and it just, she gets annoyed. And I'm like, this is the volume of my voice. I don't know what to tell you. Like (laughs) basically all I will be doing for the rest of my life is whispering. And that's what she's beating me into a pulp getting me to just whisper i think this is what she wants (laughs) whatever the thing about where relationships sometimes build up is around resentment and and what's so amazing about this is we tend to if we can if we're lucky enough to to scratch to the bottom of the surface it is really small things that we never addressed and they build up and then they become real issues I, i can identify with you and and love that partnership that that Glennon brings to you around awareness of other people and identify you with you because it's the way we're groomed in sports. I mean, we think about how we can impact the team and we think about our team, but we don't think beyond our team because actually we hate the other team. Like that, mm-hmm. that's how that's how we're built. And in life, we actually need to think about the other team. Right. And the other teams because their their feelings matter. And that's big in business is it's not as cutthroat as sports, although some boardrooms might be. But we'll, we'll finish kind of with this. And I like how you talked about the idea of crossover. So just any like parting words on spirituality, sports, leadership, and self-discovery and how you say they're all integrated. Mm. And 
we want to not only grow as athletes and growth in the athlete lexicon is improve our skills, but the big thing in life, no matter the industry is wanting to be heard. And the challenge there is wanting to be heard. Uh, it can feel narcissistic from time to time. And like, why do I need to be heard? But there are some like deep connections there around being seen, being heard, whether it is tied to the political divisiveness in our country right now, whether it's to centuries of oppression of marginalized groups, or whether it's just in a relationship with our intimate partner. What's your path like? How often do you think about that full life integration and where are you at now? Yeah, I think that the concept of like life work balance is BS. I think it's just life and you just got to figure out how to manage your life and your work um, mm. and figure out what works best for you. I know that I'm lucky to have a family in an environment where I get to decide um, because I've basically been my own boss my whole life. And in terms of the full roundedness of humanity and being heard, I think that that's a really important thing. The, the belief, the idea, and then the follow through on that concept because it, it works for our own individual selves and then it works for the world, right? What gets us stuck right now, especially in this political divisiveness that you talk about, is everybody wants to individually be heard. We have these social media platforms that are magnifying um, that relentless desire to be heard. But what we want from an individual level is something that we are not willing to give in terms of hearing other people. Hmm. So it's just everybody shouting at each other, right? And I think that that is why this pandemic has kind of come all into our lives. We've all been shouting, right? But have we been doing enough listening? I know that for me, that's that's what this has been for me. I'm, I've been, and it's my balance. It's a thing that, because I'm a shouter too. I like to be heard. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But one of my life challenges is to listen and to try to listen as closely as I possibly can, especially to those people who don't have a voice or don't have a platform or might find themselves in a marginalized position where they don't have the privilege of white men walking around the world that whenever you speak, people listen, right? Mm -hmm. You know, one of our friends recently said, I'm like yelling into the wind that nobody can hear me. Mm -hmm. And she happens to be a black woman and it's right. She's right. And all of us have these proximities to power that I think we have to get really real with. So I don't know. I believe that you reap what you sow in a lot of ways. And Dan Levy, my agent, he said to me one time about parenting, I mean, it's 150% all the time. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you don't break from parenting. Like, right. it's just all in. Wow. And that was the best advice. And I think that, that might be the real, real on life. Like, if you want a good life, if you want success, there is a cost right? Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's time. But in order to get what you want, you got to you gotta get real real quiet, listen to yourself. Um, and then I think what we as a culture need to do is start listening to each other. Like, Don't we all just want to get through this stage we're in to the other side? Like, yeah. let's do it. Like, let's collectively agree. Like, we don't want to stay here. Like, we want to get to the good part. Amazing. Well, thank you for that, uh, especially coming from uh, the athlete who, who hit a goal that was coined the 
the header heard around the world. So <laughs> you, uh, you were heard around the world in, in the greatest amplification possible in the global game of soccer. And now you're doing a, a lot of listening and appreciate you sharing on, uh, on this podcast, Abby. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Abby is a legend. And despite her early wish on the show, Gatorade commercial, forget me, we never will, Abby. And while I'm sure that might sit weird with you, it's true. All right. At the top of the show, I called this episode 10 of 12 for season three. But in the spirit of truthfulness per Abby's comments in the interview, we've decided to open up the season to three additional guests, which will take us through the middle of May and a season total of 15 guests. Suiting up, season three will end before the PLL season begins this June. Yes, we're winding down. And I'm so grateful for all of our guests thus far and really glad we've done this. So without further ado, here is the upcoming lineup. Next week, we have MLS Commissioner Don Garber, followed by the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs and former lacrosse player John Tavares, then one of the most thoughtful, successful, and powerful people in media, Ariana Huffington, followed by the on and off field football, motivational speaker, turned entrepreneur legend, Eric Legrand. And we finish the show with a 2020 presidential candidate, the center of New Jersey and champion of the College Athletes Bill of Rights, Senator Cory Booker. You heard it here first. Now please consider subscribing to Suiting Up on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pods. And while you're at it, Give us a short rating and review. We would appreciate that greatly. This show is presented by public.com. They create a whole new way to invest for you and I. They also make the stock market social so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of your money. You can follow me at Paul Rabel on public.com and OutSystems. They provide tools to help companies quickly build apps when it comes to the PLL. They helped us design our COVID app in 2020. And then again in 2021 and onward into the future, visit OutSystems.com. And lastly, everything here has been made possible by our incredible team at PLL Podcast. Shout out to our producers and editors, Brett Roberts and Nick Bailey on this show. Research done by Andrew Manning, graphics and design by Liam Murphy, coordinated by RJ Kaminsky, and our overtime newsletter from Joe Keegan. We'll see you next week.